Today's reading will be from Genesis 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it really is I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt and about everything you've seen. And bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and he wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all of his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan, and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also instructed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. So the sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them the carts as Pharaoh had commanded and he also gave them provisions for their journey. To each of them he gave new clothing, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five sets of clothes. And this is what he sent to his father. Ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and other provisions for his journey. Then he sent his brothers away and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't quarrel on the way. So they went up and out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him, Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned and he did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, I am convinced my son Joseph is still alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Amen. If you've been keeping up with the news over the past week, you may have some cause for concern about the way things are going, not just in our lives here in Scotland or even in the UK 
or even in our part of the world, but the entire world seems to be coming apart at the seams at the moment. When we look at our own nation, we can see all of the, uh, the damaging impact of coronavirus. News this week, uh, as Brexit negotiations come to uh, an apparent conclusion, whether they will or not is anyone's guess, but they seem to be drawing to um, a bit of a disunited conclusion. And even within all of the stresses and strains of that, news from within Downing Street makes it apparent that, that Downing Street is sort of coming apart uh, at the seams as advisors and um, members of Boris Johnson's inner circle seem to be leaving and abandoning him. And the whole thing just appears to be a, a total mess. And then we look across uh, at Europe and see the unrest that we've seen there with um, uh, terrorism in France and the killing of uh, French citizens by uh, Islamic extremists. We can see all of the disunity that's occurring uh, in places like Italy, where people are disgruntled with the way they're being treated by the EU. And then we look across uh, the ocean at the United States and the interesting situation that's unfolded there uh, with their election. It, it seems as if no two human beings can get on and that society seems to be slowly pulling itself apart. What on earth do you do with all of this uh, as a Christian? How do we cope with all of this uncertainty, all of this conflict and fighting? How do we understand all of this in light of the fact that God says he sits over all? He appoints national leaders of his choosing. He governs and rules. He is sovereign. What on earth does any of that mean in light of the seeming chaos that's going on around us? We can think perhaps on a smaller scale of our own lives and wonder how God can be in control with all of the stresses and strains that we experience as individuals. Family life is never simple or straightforward. Church life is never simple or straightforward. And how the church exists in our uh, Western, postmodern, post-Christian uh, world is far from simple. How on earth is God involved in any of this? And, and what are we supposed to do as a Christian people? Well, interestingly enough, we are coming to the very end of Genesis. This is our second last time in the book of Genesis. Next week will be uh, the very end. And it's, it's taken us a year to have walked all the way through the book of Genesis. And yet here we are as we cover Genesis 45 through to 48 and come right up to almost the very end of Joseph's life and, uh, and his time. And in this, we find a sentiment expressed in these chapters that we can read summarized elsewhere in Scripture when we hear these words, that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. Now, to say that in light of everything going on in our day maybe stretches us a little bit. We, we wonder perhaps how that can be possible in light of everything that's going on. And it's important for us to remember that that sentiment is expressed most clearly in, in those words in the New Testament. And yet we see that same sentiment expressed by Joseph in chapter 45 particularly and then through uh, 46, 47, and 48. That all things are being worked out by God 
for his people, for their good, for ultimately their blessing. And it's astonishing to consider that as we recognize everything that Joseph's had to go through in his life. And yet we can see it worked out in Joseph's life because we're looking back on it in a way that is helpful for us so that while we are living out our lives right now and in the midst of it all can't see how this could possibly be true, we're able to look back and recognize that in Joseph's day it was true. And there's no reason for us to doubt the truthfulness of that statement in our own day. And perhaps years from now, we will be able to look back and see how God was at work in it all, leading us onwards. And in these chapters, we find first in chapter 45 of Genesis, firstly, what God doesn't promise. God doesn't ever promise that all things are good in and of themselves. As we begin in in chapter 45, we see very clearly from the life of Joseph that there have been a great many things that have been the very opposite of good. They've been terrible. Joseph has had to endure a huge number of afflictions, difficulties, persecutions, all manner of things. And so now we have, even in the lives of Joseph's brothers and their father Jacob, we see pain in God's leading. They come down into Egypt again. They've already been down. They've already um, had a bit of a run-in with Joseph and he's sort of set them up. He's kept one of their number prisoner and sent the rest home. And if they don't return with the youngest brother, Benjamin, then you'll never see your brother again. And so now the famine has continued. They had no intention of returning to Egypt. They've had to return back to Egypt or face starvation. And they've had to bring Benjamin with them. And Joseph has again set them up. He's going to keep Benjamin in prison. And Judah ultimately steps to the fore so that their dad won't die when he hears the news that his favorite son has been kept in prison and he may never see him ever again. They know that Jacob has suffered immense grief because of what they've done to Joseph. They know that he has suffered immense grief because Simeon has been left behind in Egypt. They know that he will suffer immeasurable grief should anything happen to his second favorite son. The whole family is gripped with pain and anxiety and frustration. And so they have to endure in chapter 45 the most painful thing in the world to them. Slavery. Giving up God's favor over them as far as they can understand. Giving up the inheritance of the promises of God. When Judah puts himself up in Benjamin's place, he is essentially putting the family into the... They're just exchanging one son for another. Joseph's just imprisoning one after the next after the next. And they know that this isn't going to stop. The whole family is going to be in prison in Egypt if this guy keeps having his way. And all the promises of God, what will they come to then? Nothing. They will have failed. But in the story, Joseph can't take it anymore. He sends the servants out. He makes sure that Pharaoh doesn't hear that these men sold his most favored servant into slavery, shaming him, dishonoring him, wishing his death. And then he reveals his true identity to them when nobody else in the Egyptian household will hear of their evil to this man. 
And even at this most joyous point in the story, Joseph doesn't sugarcoat anything. He nails them to the wall in a sense. I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. You know, the one that you sold into slavery in Egypt, as if there could be any other brother that they might mistake him for. But he wants them to understand he hasn't just heard of what they've done and sort of cast himself in this position. He is revealing to them details of what has gone on that they have kept hidden from everyone. Nobody else knows that Joseph was sold into slavery. Only they know together. And Joseph says, I know because I'm the one that you sold into slavery. And then they're sent home by Pharaoh to gather up the entire family and bring them all down into Egypt to preserve them, to keep them safe where they can't be safe in the land of Canaan. They'll be provided for for the rest of their lives. And even here there is sadness because they've been spared, but they still have to go home and tell Jacob, we lied to you for 20 years. Your favorite son that you loved more than any one of us, and we'll just gloss over the pain that that's caused them. Your favorite son that we sort of led you to believe had been killed by a wild animal actually was never dead. We sold him into slavery, and now he's the one who's been keeping us imprisoned in Egypt. He's been the one that sustained our lives through the selling of this grain. And when they do, Jacob's heart goes numb. It's deadened, we read. Can't believe them. Can't believe that it's true. Can't believe that his own children, his own flesh and blood, would lie to him for 20 years. It's an unbelievably painful experience for Jacob. And we can understand that today within our own family. Imagine your family, close family, the ones that you love, lied to you every day for two decades about one of the most important events in your life. How would you feel? Crushed. Devastated. That you can never trust these people ever again. We were family, weren't we? And what does that say about God's promised blessing to His people? Through your people, I'm going to bring blessings to the world. You will be a great nation. How great a nation could they possibly be? They can't trust one another. This is a terrible family. Jacob's got to be wondering, where did I go wrong? How can I have got it so badly wrong to have produced such dreadful sons as these? You can't see any positive. Because like us, they are living in their present. They can only see the days in which they're living. They don't have the foresight to look, you know, decades or hundreds of years into the future and see what God will do with Uh, their ancestors. None of them can see beyond their days like we can't. And I don't think any of them enjoyed the 20 years of lying, of imprisonment, of loss. But you don't get the feeling either that any of them had any problem with the reality that Joseph outlines in the middle of the chapter. God has been at work in the whole sorry mess for good even while they were at work for evil. The two truths are held together, and Joseph will revisit this right at the very end of the book uh, of Genesis. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Good things have come through very difficult, hard, painful circumstances. One of the pictures that Scripture uses again and again because of its 
um, its earthiness, its ability for us to get hold of is that image of childbirth. That a terribly difficult, painful, arduous experience has gone through on the part of the mother as she literally labors hard to bring the child into the world. And all of that pain and all of that distress and hard labor is then contrasted with the elation, with the joy of the birth of the child. The son, the daughter has come and all of the joy of that moment when they are born, they are here and and all of their beauty is exposed to the world draws all of that pain into sharp contrast. And not to do it down in any way, but it is made worth it for the thing that you now have in this beautiful child that's before you today. That the pain begins to recede into memory, never to be forgotten, but to be contrasted with the joy of now a lifetime spent with uh, this baby. And so it is here. A process, a painful one has been gone through and yet there is joy now as we look back and see it was worth it all. And so we hold these two truths together. The evil is at work in the world, in the hearts of men, through, through Satan, the one who would lead us into evil, away from righteousness. And yet God is at work in those same events. He ordains them, he decrees them, and yet does so in such a way to bring about his own holy purposes so that some better end may come. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Not God sort of hoped he could bring around for good or work things out in such a way that he could make something good out of something bad. God intended it from the beginning. And he did so for good. We might not understand how that's possible. We're not going to understand how that's possible. And yet, at the same time, if God is sovereign and all-knowing, he must be in control of all things. And this isn't something we should shy away from. It's something that we ought to embrace because it means that when we pray for someone who is suffering and beyond mere human help, we know that God not only understands their situation but has the power to change it because he truly is in total control. If he wasn't in control of their suffering when it began, if he couldn't have stopped it from happening in the first place, then how on earth can he rescue us from it, change our circumstances in the midst of it all? How can God save sinners if he is not in sovereign control? There is none that seek after God. Paul says, not one. We are all living in complete darkness and blindness. We reject God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says. Is that person ever going to choose God? No. No one does what's pleasing in God's sight, Paul says. Not one person. But God raises us up from death to life like Lazarus in the tomb when Jesus goes and Lazarus has been dead for three days in the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. He has the power to transform that man and give him life. Did he ask Lazarus if he wanted life? No. Did he ask Lazarus if he wanted to come out of the tomb? No. He commanded and so it was. Sovereign control over all things. And we are blessed to be the recipients of God's sovereign work. 
All things might not be good. All experiences are not good. But God is good, always. And he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And that's where the story goes next. In in chapters 46 and following, we find not what God hasn't promised, that all things will be good. We find what he does promise. All things will work together for good. So how do we cope in times of trouble when we, like Joseph, can't see the good of God being worked together in our lives? All we experience is the pain and the suffering. Well, in chapter 46, we see God speaking to Jacob as he prepares to leave Canaan. That helps us understand. You may remember that when famine last gripped the land, Isaac was tempted to go down into Egypt for help. And if we read back through Genesis, we find this is uh, one of these repetitions in the story of God's people. But at Gerar, God told him, no, don't go that way. And in the end, Isaac went and settled in Beersheba. Now, this time at Beersheba, um, Jacob seeks God's counsel and God tells him, Uh, Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt and then gives him uh, six assurances in the opening four verses of the chapter. We see a parallel here. Isaac settles in Beersheba and is not to go into Egypt. Jacob at Beersheba now seeks God's counsel and he tells him now that he is to go uh, down into Egypt. And in these six assurances in the opening four verses, we find that we are able to draw comfort for ourselves as Jacob is comforted and reassured. And it makes sense of God's leading us through difficult times that will nonetheless lead to our good. So we find firstly that he assures Jacob that I am your God. Whatever Jacob experiences, he is Jacob's God. It doesn't matter where he goes or what happens to him, Yahweh will be Jacob's God and that cannot be taken away by anyone. This is a a personal relationship. It's not subject to review or to be revoked by anybody else. Jacob and God are united together in a relationship that can only be broken apart by the participants. And Jacob isn't powerful enough to flee from God anywhere. God will persist in pursuing him. And so it is with each one of us that when we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, God says in that moment, I will be your God regardless of your experience. We get something of the flavor for that all the way through the Old Testament and into the New where people try and flee from the presence of God. We can think of characters that we've already encountered in Genesis. We can think of Jonah as he tries to flee God's presence because he doesn't want to go to Nineveh and tell the people to repent. And yet even in the very depths of the ocean, he knows that God is there. He can't flee. Job confesses that if I were to go down to the very foundations of the earth, if I was to be completely covered by the ocean and drown in its depths, I can't flee from you. If I go to the heights of the heavens, you're already there. It's a personal relationship that God himself in his sovereign power acquires, initiates and sustains. And so even when we feel distant from God, when we simply can't lift our heads to see above the the suffering of this present day, God will still be our God. He tells Jacob, secondly, that he should not be afraid. 
And this is a natural progression from the fact that he is Jacob's God now and forever. If the sovereign Lord of all creation is with you as your God and you trust him, then what do you have to fear in this life? You know that things might be terrible. You know that you might even die. But even in death, you're not going to be overwhelmed or lost by God because you are secure in his hands. And this makes, again, much more sense in light of what God has accomplished in Christ, the ultimate grandson of Jacob. Jesus comes and actually makes this a reality for us because even in death, we find that Christ carries us on. That sin and death are defeated in his death on the cross and in his resurrection. And so there is literally nothing in all the universe that can separate us from the love of God. I will be your God. Do not be afraid. Thirdly, we find uh, that God assures Jacob that I will make you a great nation. He repeats the promises that have been made to Abraham and to Isaac, to Jacob. Uh, This detour down into Egypt and then ultimately back up isn't a reneging of God's promises. He isn't done with his people just because they're leaving the land of Canaan for a time. While I'm still with you and still your God, the assurances of my promises still stand, God is saying to Jacob. You may lose sight of them, but I never will. And I will see them delivered. And again, this is a reassurance for us in Christ. That God will never lose sight of the promises that he has made to to be our God, to save us and sustain us, even when we completely lose sight of it and wander off the path that he has set before us. That we have cause for confidence for ourselves and for our family members who have confessed truly the name of Jesus and yet for a time seem to be wandering off into other things. That God will never forget his promises. If they have truly been saved, they will be preserved by God in that salvation. For who can take it away? Even when they forget, God doesn't. And he will see Jacob and his people and us as part of that family adopted into it by Christ's blood. He will see us delivered. He assures Jacob, fourthly, that he will go with him down into Egypt. And this isn't something that seems all that big of a surprise to us because we believe that God is everywhere. But in the ancient world, that wasn't the case. The the God of your people stopped. His presence, His power stopped at the boundary of where your people lived. Egypt had all of their own gods who were clearly much more powerful than Jacob's God because they were the gods of Egypt. And He wasn't. And so if Jacob goes down into Egypt, surely God's Um, jurisdiction ends and he is then living under the jurisdiction of the gods of Egypt. Jacob's little God will surely be swallowed up by such big and powerful gods in the ancient way of thinking. But God is teaching his people, there is nowhere that I cannot go, even down into Egypt. And if we Uh, spool through history forward into the Exodus and we see the ten plagues that you may remember from the story of Moses uh, told in, in Exodus, you find each of those ten plagues is a picture of God overwhelming one of the gods of Egypt. 
God is confessing with each of those plagues that he is more powerful than any Egyptian god in that land. And we don't have time to dwell on that this morning, but that is where uh, the story goes. God goes into Egypt with his people and is more powerful than anyone and anything. And then leads his people back out of Egypt because who can stop me doing my will? God is confessing to Jacob that I will go with you. You will never be apart from me because I'm your God and you're my son. And this is the greatest confession for our confidence today that in Christ God says to us, I will go with you wherever you go. It's confessed in the incarnation itself when Jesus is born. God, as John says, takes on human flesh and dwells with his people. I'm actually coming and living with you. Walking with you, talking with you, where you go, I go. What you experience, I experience, and yet without sin. There is nowhere you can go in this life that I cannot go with you. Remember that. Remember that you will never, ever be on your own ever again. For all that Joseph's experience might be our experience, you might be thrown into jail and left in isolation, sold into slavery. And it seems crazy for us to say that, but it is possible for people today in this country to be sold into slavery. But even then, God says, I will be with you if you are mine. If you have confessed that I am your God, if you have confessed your sins, turned and cast yourself upon Christ, there is literally nowhere you can go that I will not be with you and I will sustain you and guide you. And then fifthly, God assures Jacob that I will bring you up again from that place. Your sojourning in the land of Egypt isn't going to be forever. It will only be for a time. It's easy for us again to see, well, of course, but Jacob had no idea what the future was going to hold. Egypt was a vast, wealthy, powerful nation and it's entirely possible that God's people would just have been swallowed up and forgotten. And yet we find that God is going to lead his people up out of that place. And and there is something for us to note here. In the ancient world, it mattered less what happened to you as an individual and more what happened to you as a people. Now, in our world today, that's not the case, but it was then. And in a world where you could be fine on Monday, catch an infection on Tuesday and be dead by Wednesday, that's perhaps understandable. It's less important what happens to the individual than what happens to the whole. And, And we can forget that today. The life of the individual does matter to God, but the life of his people as a whole matters more. And God will do what is right by his people, even if it means leading individual children of his through very difficult circumstances. And it's true today that the life of the church is what matters. That will continue. That will endure even when individual Christians must lay down their lives for the sake of the whole. The promises of God will be worked out fully to his people. And that's true in our day. God will sustain his church. Christ will return at some point and gather his church to himself. And we might all have been dead for a thousand years before that happens. But he will bring it to pass. And something for us to consider as we look at that is, are we building a church 
today that will be up to the task of lasting that distance? Are we equipping our young people today so that they will carry on our mission of of being the church and seeing the church grow and expand in our day so that it will lay hold of that future in God's strength and by God's providential leading? God will bring His people up. They will not stay down forever. And so it is for the church. He will lift the church up. He will carry the church on regardless of what it faces in the present day. And lastly, he assures uh, Jacob that he will bring Jacob to himself. He will bring Jacob home. Jacob will die, but it will be on God's terms and at God's time. And it will be a homecoming rather than a defeat because your son Joseph will be the one who closes your eyes. It's an interesting way of putting it. Up until recently, that would have been an impossible thing for Jacob because Joseph is dead, and yet God in his providence has essentially brought Joseph back from the dead as far as Jacob is concerned, so to speak. And he will be there at the end for Jacob. Jacob will be among his own people when he finally enters into God's presence. God is about the work of bringing Jacob home. And these assurances as much as they are Jacob's, are ours today. God is about the work of bringing us home. We labor hard for God in that knowledge. That that even should the worst come to the worst, God will bring us to himself. So what have we got to fear? What do we have to lose in the striving, in the laboring for God and for his kingdom in our present age? Paul said that. It doesn't matter what happens to me. If I'm stoned to death, imprisoned, beaten with sticks, it makes no difference whatsoever because at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen to me is I die and go to be with Christ. And that is a far better thing for me. But I'll stay with you for a time until that day comes. And so it is for us, even when we go through tremendous difficulty. How hard can this get? Not so hard that it will overwhelm God's assurances to us. And what this means in chapters 47 and 48 is that as the famine continues, the people of Egypt will go, the people of Israel will go down into Egypt and be given the best land, the land of Goshen, uh, to live in. It's fertile, it was vast, they could live there and flourish there with complete freedom, protected by Pharaoh and fed by their son, brother Joseph. Joseph brings Egypt under Pharaoh's complete control in these chapters. So the boy who was sold into slavery in Egypt now essentially brings the whole of Egypt into slavery under Pharaoh because he's the one in control of the food. So you have to give me everything I ask for in order to have this food. And what Joseph asks for is everything. He acquires all the land of Egypt in payment for the food that will sustain the people and places it all under Pharaoh's control. And all of this is by God's work in his life. As we go ahead with God's blessing in Christ, we find that God blesses us beyond any expectation we might have. And the same is true here. Israel is blessed beyond imagining. They are given the most fertile, bountiful land in the ancient world at that time protected by one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. They could never have dreamt of that. This is not mere survival. This is flourishing beyond their ability to comprehend. And so it is with us in Christ. We cannot imagine the blessings we are given in Jesus. Life and direction and guidance and sustenance and uh, an eternal future with God. Couldn't imagine that. 
And yet we're given it freely by God's grace. And so we go with faith into the future, knowing it's going to be hard. Not all things will be good, but God is working all things together for our good, for that future. Jacob goes into the presence of Pharaoh and blesses him in chapters 47 and 48. Hard to imagine that's possible. Little Jacob from Canaan, a backwater, blesses Pharaoh of Egypt. But God has brought everything, all the pain he's experienced, to this moment where he's given everything God has been promising him. And it has all come about through God's working all things together for the good of those who love him. As we think about our own lives, as we think about the struggles we face, it can be hard for us to lift our eyes above the pain and the frustration and the difficulties we face at that time. But our trust in God and in his word comes because God is always faithful to what he has said. And we look back at this example and we can see God working out everything to bring about his own glorious end, the salvation of his people. They're flourishing so that they multiply beyond imagining in Egypt so that Moses can lead them out into the promised land. We see that in the life of Jesus, who is the the seed of the woman that is promised to Jacob, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that comes through Judah's line, saved by Joseph. That he is led through so many trials and tribulations, he is laid out and nailed down on the cross. And yet, through that pain, so hard for him to see beyond in the moment of agony, we find blessing beyond imagining for people of every tribe and tongue and nation, for me and for you. You are no less than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. And you are certainly no more than Christ. If this is their experience, it's not unreasonable for us to expect it to be our experience. We can trust God completely because what he is doing is bringing out a far more glorious end for his people, the church, and he is using us to get to that end. Our goal is not to enjoy every experience of life just now. Our goal is to play our part, play our role in that end. All things in your life will not be good, but all things, elections, Brexit, health crisis, whatever it might be, all things will work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. For his purpose is capturing the whole world and placing it under the feet of Christ that people from every tribe and tongue and nation might glorify his name for all eternity. Amen.